Join us as we delve into the pulsating heart of Detroit's electronic music scene with God Said Give Them Drum Machines. In this podcast, we sit down with director Christian Hill and producer Jennifer Washington to explore the untold story of the black artists who crafted techno's radical new sound. Discover the deep musical lineage from jazz to Motown that influenced these pioneers and their struggle for recognition in a genre they helped define. Tune in for an enlightening conversation that celebrates techno's origins during Black History Month and beyond. The documentary says light on the cultural roots of Detroit techno. Could you elaborate on how you integrated the social cultural context of Detroit into the narrative, especially considering the historical current current relevance? No, um, man, Detroit, the history of Detroit and um, kind of its its culture is something that's kind of very important to the birth of this dance music scene. And it was necessary to kind of keep Detroit present throughout the, uh, the storyline because these guys come from such a rich legacy that they were in kind of influenced by, you know, being Motown, being a lot of the uh, musicians, uh, from this time earlier time in Detroit, there were so many musicians do, in Detroit, and you know you had, of course, you had uh, Mojo, who was a radio dish jockey who spoke to the city and spoke to the surrounding areas. So he was also a, a big influence on uh, these young men in terms of and, and our scene in our city, so that. Uh, it was necessary to kind of like keep some of these elements of, as you mentioned in our earlier, uh, when you lived there, it was called the new dance show. However, prior to that, it was called the scene. So in the scene, uh, that was the, the early uh, incarnation of uh, kind of the Soul Train spinoff. And, but because of that, they began to play local records. And they began to play this music on television and you would see people dancing to this music. And all while that's happening, there's a club culture emerging emerging uh, beyond the disco movement. It's affecting young kids uh, at that time, my age. So you're getting all this import music from from uh, Europe, you're getting uh, music from California, from Egyptian Lover, all this is happening. We're being influenced bad times by uh, Captain Rap, which is Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Like all these records are are starting to have like an impact on the kids, on the teenage scene in Detroit. And so because of that, we kind of felt it was necessary to keep Detroit at the fore because it's the, melting or it's kind of the culmination where all this music and information is coming together. And these six gentlemen who we focus on, plus some of the other people in the film, they're directly influenced by it's happening because they're they're coming into the city at a time where all of this is happening. So it's a, a direct relationship in terms of their creativity of what they're learning and seeing and how it's inspiring them. So we just felt it was necessary to keep some of those story points about uh, the young club scene in Detroit, 
uh, about Mojo, about uh, the theme. These things ha are necessary because they're the uh, foundation in which all this music is kind of built on. And uh, speaking on the music, can you discuss like uh, some of the the, the the things that you learned that you didn't doing it that you learn that you didn't know about until you did this film? Some of the highlights of some of the stories you learned about the music that you didn't know about. When we grew up, we we called it progressive music. That's what we were calling the music that we liked. And then house. We weren't really calling it techno, at least when I came out of high school. And then when I moved to L.A., I started hearing this term techno being used, but it wasn't really describing the type of music that I grew up listening to or that I preferred to like, you know, or liked. And so, um, but it wasn't until 2010 when I went home to Detroit for a visit where I was um, introduced to a, the first techno music in the world. It's called Exhibit 3000 um, at the Submerge um, Underground Resistance headquarters in Detroit on East Grand Boulevard. I, I really didn't know that this music that I grew up listening to was really now considered techno. And so when this happened, you know, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I wasn't even a filmmaker at the time, but when I walked through those walls, I saw all the cases of all my favorite songs on the walls preserved and put into this context. Then I knew, I was like, this is a big deal. Why is this a secret? Cause I didn't know this. And this is, you know, this museum is, nondescript building there's no sign out front they don't promote it like that and so that's when I realized that um this story needed to be told um on a major platform and um that's when I ran into Christian again and uh that's you know the rest is history so you both ran into each other and did you know each other when you were in Detroit or when you left Detroit like how did you not in Detroit I mean we both live in LA now, but um, there's a whole bunch of Detroit folks out here um, mm. in LA. And so we were part of that crowd. And then so, but we didn't really connect until um, 2010. Okay. Um, I'm always fascinated by certain sounds and subgenres that are created in different parts of the country and how it came to be. DC has this go-go, Baltimore and Jersey has this club. You know, Atlanta has his trap. Chicago, of course, has his house. Um, I'm always fascinated, like, what made that, those cities, what was in that city, what was in the water that, like, led to this sound? And I have that same question for Detroit. What do you think, like, led to the creation of techno? Why not New York created? Why not Minneapolis created? Why did Detroit create this unique sound? Well, I, I would say that... Um a lot of it spills out from the early uh, records of Juan Atkins and um, Cybertron, Rick Davis. Uh, there was also a group called A Number of Names, which had a song called Shari Vari. Um, these songs had the, uh, the futuristic sound or appeal that was very akin to electro and um as electro is coming online uh wine sound is becoming more a signature of the city through 
uh, Mojo. Mojo is champion, is being uh, a champion of this sound and playing these records. And so there's a, a, a pride that's developing and it, it's, it's kind of uh, influencing other young artists at the time. So uh, young artists like Blake Baxter or Santonio, Eddie Folks to a degree, um, even Kevin and Derek, they all owe their musical inspirations to Juan and Rick and the early Cybertron stuff. And um, it, it's that that's kind of creating the whole synergy for people to make records. And there's also a DJ culture uh, kind of evolving. So, uh, but these guys were one of the first to like make records and they all have distinct sounds, right? So everybody's sound isn't the same signature as Cybertron or Juan stuff. Once Derek comes in, you, you, you feel the influence of Chicago House. When Kevin comes in, it's more of a pop sound, but it's, it, 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 he's bringing in a female vocalist, Paris Gray. City. from Chicago, inner city. So th these, all of these sounds, Blake was more of a raw, raw sound, uh, but it, it was more in the signature of a, 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 a techno, but also a house because he sounds like, you know, in, in some ways, Jamie Principal, who's from Chicago. Blake's early roots are from Chicago. Uh, so these early innovators, they're being influenced by everything around them. And it's not until they have to commodify the music by uh, you having people come over from Europe looking for these records, they're coming to Chicago and then they eventually find Detroit. And when they find Detroit, they're trying to figure out a way to sell this music internationally. And that's where the, the kind of, the, the naming of the music comes from. And that's where kind of all these guys are kind of like grouped together and they call this the new dance sound, the new sound, new dance sound of Detroit techno. And um, it was 1987, 88, when this kind of, uh, this album was released called the new sound of Detroit through Virgin Records. And uh, that is where the kind of, techno in Detroit become like synonymous. However, prior to then, as, as, Jer as Jennifer noted, like we just thought this was music. We thought it was like the music uh, of, of our town, our city. We didn't know the name of it, but it, it was then that it had a name and techno was something when uh, Inner City dropped this album with Big Fun and Good Life. Uh, that was the first techno record on uh, MTV, you know? So at that time, that's when it becomes more of a, a popular culture thing or a brand associated with a city, a musical city that's uh, recovering from, you know, uh, the, Mo the, the death of the Motown era. Motown left Detroit in like 71. So there's like uh, this gap, even though you still have Motown Museum there on Grand Boulevard, uh, that's the Motown we knew from the 50s and the 60s. So, you know, you also have uh, funk happening in Detroit. You have, uh, forgive me, you have uh, George Clinton and things happening, but that sound is not necessarily 
given to it's not like funk is the home of Detroit like they weren't necessarily saying that even though a lot of the players and a lot of that music was being done in uh, a studio the name of the studio is kind of escaping me right now but a lot of that stuff was done in Detroit so the techno sound came and it gave uh, a, a kind of a name for this music that was emerging from there that was different from what was happening in New York, Chicago, London, and any other place. We mentioned like a lot of these uh, icons of the music and the genre, like Juan Atkins and Kevin Sardinson. Can you explain to me how their personal experience shaped the development of the sound? And they were uh, high school, like Juan was a little older, but Derek and Kevin were high school high school teammates. They played on the same football team together. Uh, Antonio and Kevin, they come together and they form recent Antonio. Uh, that was because at the time, Kevin, who was a Phi Beta Sigma, uh, or was a Sigma, uh, he knew Santonio's twin brother. Um, you know, uh, Derek being the kind of the more outgoing of all of them, he was traveling back and forth. His parents lived in Chicago. And in that, that is where he met Blake. Um, so they're meeting each other as they're all trying to figure out uh, how to make records, you know, and Juan being the one who had been making records uh, since 1980, 81, he was the one that kind of they all kind of like learned from. And then there's other people in the city that that are adding to this. You have Jeff Mills on the radio, you know, uh, who's now who's known who was then known as the wizard. But Jeff Mills impact on this is happening uh, on like on the radio, on a popular Detroit level. Um so there, he's having to play their records, you know, in addition to Mojo. Um, so like all of these guys are like emerging out of different parts of the culture. And, but it's really uh, Juan's, Juan's early work, Cybertron's early work. And then Juan, when he became Model 500, that this thing became like uh, more of a product you know, it was a record. It's 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 becoming more of a subgenre once we start to add more records to the catalog. And that's how this techno thing becomes um, a movement that people, it, this small group is, uh, that we call a techno six, they become kind of the early uh, pioneers uh, because again, their records were being played in New York in Chicago, uh, as well as Detroit. And it's really establishing this subgenre in uh, other places being played in Los Angeles. You know, Juan's early work would get paid played in Los Angeles and people would just think it was a funkier craft work, not knowing that uh, Cybertron is from Detroit. So there was just this whole uh, kind of uh, learning curve that at the time through music that we were all kind of like figuring how interconnected we were. And um, it, it's uh, Egyptian Lover, who we interviewed for the film. 
I mean, he would tell us that uh, the radio stations in Los Angeles would come to the parties and they would listen to all the music they played and write it down and then go back and play these records on the radio. So this kind of, uh, again, bubbling of a culture is happening, but nobody is able to put a face on it for many years later. We're going to talk a little bit deeper on this, but, you know, a lot of people, uh, I, I remember when I first did a radio special on Detroit Techno in Minneapolis for Black History Month, people like, didn't believe me, thought I was joking. <laughs> like, no, techno is Europe. Like, techno is like, what are you talking about? Were there ways or what ways did racial and culture barriers impacted these artists? And if so, how did they navigate these challenges throughout their careers? Hmm. You're talking about cultural redlining. So how a lot they would try to overcome this early was, was by giving themselves alter egos and names that didn't have racial designation. Hmm. So somebody like Juan would call himself Model 500 because uh, Model 500 was uh, a name that they were, was something that they were putting together by describing like uh, cafes and things within their whole techno speak dictionary. There was like a techno speak dictionary. There was this whole kind of like techno culture happening, but uh, in Detroit. Um, that I'm not sure, uh, like you could say, hey, techno started in Germany or it started in Japan, um, but I don't think it was as much a culture as it was uh, in Detroit. And then it, it, in terms of the the music, it was kind of intentional that they were making this music and they were billing it and calling it techno. I mean, um, so they were doing things uh, in a way that they were trying to, again, remove any racial racial designation. So within black culture at the time, it was about being who you are, you know, like, you know, Teddy Pendergrass, you know, you know Bobby Brown, people were names. It was something that you can immediately tangibly connect it to uh, a record and a face. Uh, but Detroit Techno in its inception wasn't like that. And Kevin Saunderson was really one of the first one with KMS Records is was the first one to kind of put his name on the music. And um, again, he he's also the one who had the early, biggest early hits, not to say that there may be a, a, a direct connection, but, you know, he's also the one that put the music out in a more traditional form. He had a female lead singer. He was a backup on drums. It was like a band, you know, and it wasn't uh, uh, kind of the techno offshoot at the time. I mean, the Kraftwerk offshoot at the time, which would within, let's say, you know, black music culture was rather rare, you know, for people, you know, without it be con being considered like jazz or a, a quartet or a trio, you know. So um, I just think from a racial standpoint, they, in its early inception, everything was done to kind of keep um, the color of these guys uh, quiet, mm. you know? And, and I think that was intentional because Juan, in, in our conversations with him, has said that uh, 
you know, record companies would never give a black electronic music artist a break hmm. because they didn't see them as being uh, that 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 was being something that, that they could sell, you know, and um, I think they tried their best in the beginning uh, again to kind of be more racial ambiguous. You know, uh, Derek is uh, what, what was his name at the time? His early name, Jennifer, if you can rhythm remember. Is rhythm. Rhythm, rhythm is, is rhythm. rhythm. Rhythm is rhythm. Uh, Blake is the Prince of Techno, um, you know, which became like a name. But uh, Reese and Santonio, like these are kind of like uh, names that don't really give you any uh, indication of kind of who these people are. And I think in the late 80s with the uh, beginning of hip hop culture and things, it was kind of important to make those stamps, make those type of connections, you know, personal connections, like rappers would have their names, you know, um, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, you know, you just, you kind of knew who these people were or, you know, and, uh, it won in them, I think, just from a standpoint, uh, or the early Techno Six, I think in the, in its early incarnation, they were using pseudonyms. Do you think that played a role in why Techno didn't get accepted in the wider Black culture of music, like hip-hop and house? Is that you think that had a, a reason why, or was there other reasons why that didn't, didn't get, uh, like, racial other urban centers throughout the throughout the country like house did for example hey man and i'll let uh i want to let jen you know jump in whenever she's ready but i i want to say that uh like in chicago it was farley julian jumping perez bad boy bill mike hitman wilson like you knew their names right in, in chicago house you knew exactly who they they were uh in popular culture, you know, not to say that House, you know, uh, Steve Hurley, Steve Silk Hurley, he even had his name, Jam Silk, Jam Silk, Steve Silk Hurley, like he put his name in the music. And um, those things, those things were intentional and it made Chicago House like, you know, something that you like, you collected those guys' names almost like uh, playing cards. Right. So uh, in terms of Detroit techno, when you don't have, you know, when you're dealing with almost like, you know, these names that, you know, I they, they, they compare to like comic strip names, the names that you would hear out of graphic novels. I just think at the time that black culture, you know, Africa Bambata, like, you know, he, he had something cultural that resonated in his name. Right. And I think the things like that uh, in terms of popular culture just made it a little more difficult for uh, black music to kind of like see this as their own. You know, uh, again, Kevin, more traditional, you know, his music eventually uh, became uh, pop. Uh, Derek, who is kind of credited for bringing the the sound evolving the sound to what we know as techno today you know he only made a few records you know in the scheme of things uh blake 
and Santonio and Eddie Folks, their careers, they have careers. They've had long careers, but sonically, um, they are more underground kings than, you know, pop music. And I think that's that that was their intention. You know, I don't think they were maybe maybe coming into it to make big hits, you know, um, keeping it more of an underground thing or making underground music, you know, which really dance music is this this culture is underground music. So for it to be super popular, mm, that's not really how you know that's not really what it was supposed to do but because you know you make careers out of this stuff that became you know later on and once you see kevin make this big hit now it's like is this what we should be doing you know what i mean that's funny uh like my guy who got me into the in the, in the techno had this mixtape of dr dre of NWA, one of his early mixtapes, most people realize, was techno. I mean, I have it in the system right here. And then Jay Dilla, you know, rest in power, um, who learned to use an MPC from the late Amp Fiddler, also made a techno track called Big Booty Express. So there was some dabbling from the hip-hop world into this space, I noticed. Um, let's talk about something fun. The tr 808 like that became kind of a symbol of the genre. Why that particular machine really stood out above any other machines for this sound? Again, I think it's the TR-808 and the 909. Um, the TR-808 stands out because at the time, uh, you know, between that and the Lindrum, you know, you wanted uh, something they wanted something more uh that didn't sound like a drum you know if they were uh using if they wanted a drum you know as Juan says that if we wanted a drummer we would if we wanted something to sound like drums we would go out and get a real drummer you know but this 808 had signature sounds that were warm enough that they felt like that this was the direction to use. I mean, it, Juan is also using a lot of uh, Moog stuff, Korg, the Korg MS-10, like a lot of these early machines are, are playing a role in the development of this music. Um, and then by the time the 909 comes out, um, this then becomes kind of the machine that, that elevates the sound to another level to another level you know it elevates it to another level and um i think the 808 and the 909 share in what techno his techno's history is you know forgive me let's talk about something a little uh serious of like the divergence i guess when techno uh you know the roots of detroit techno seems to start to get buried the history when it jumped over to europe and kind of blew up right um, you kind of talk a little about that and with the Berlin thing, but it kind of went like over Europe, it exploded. Um, and then it kind of came back to the States, you know, um, how did the originators feel about that over the course of the, to, to now to see people like John Guetta and not John David Guetta and all Oakenfold, all these people become 
known as the creator originators of this sound. How did Saunders and and and, and Juan and Derek feel about this? You know, some people might call it colonization of the music um, over the years, and now the people who love in America don't even know this history that came from uh, one of the blackest cities in the country. You know, uh, again, that's where you see a separation with uh, within the original Techno Six. So that's where you start to hear this term Belleville Three. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a kind of grouping that's happening in order to kind of like ensure that this this music and this history is related to these three men who are from Detroit. Um, when that happens, um, I believe they're clinging on because then they become kind of the the guys that um, these guys who you named, Oakenfeld, uh, who's, forgive me, one of the uh, early guys who was an A&R, um, Pete Tong. Yeah. Pete Tong, Pete Tong then becomes kind of uh, someone who is licensing the Detroit music. And, and years later, he, he puts together orchestras that plays the Detroit music and has other people come sing it and stuff like that. I believe that um, that our guys, that these three, that it, all of them had careers during this moment. Uh, Blake in particular was very popular in Berlin, early Berlin. Um, Derek is going all over the place, but they're they're popular, but their records, again, their their records are not really becoming uh popular because the scene is growing in and you're you're having more artists in antwerp you're having in belgium you're having things happening in amsterdam like all of kind of central europe uh, from central europe all the way over to london is now creating their own djs and their own sounds so that they now feel like hey we're we're as much techno as the originators because their scene is being supported you know in the states uh 1987 80 by 88 you got uh 89 like what is it public enemy and nations of millions is uh comes out like the states is going towards hip-hop so these guys are finding solace in being superstars in Europe and nobody knowing them in the States. And um, it's that that's kind of what they're holding on to is they that they have a uh, amount of fame overseas that they don't have in Detroit. And that becomes cool. Like that, that, that becomes a way of life after a while. So um, even though you're having, you know, Avicii, rest in peace, you're having all these people come on the scene and, and do stadiums, you know, you know, they're Oakenfelds doing stadiums and opening up for the Rolling Stones and stuff like that. Like, that's because uh, at that point, the music is now uh, 
considered Export. a European music. It's exported. So it's just coming back to America and Americans don't recognize, they don't recognize it as black music anymore because now it's all over the place. You know, you got stars again, as I mentioned, like Antwerp, Belgium, um, you know, uh, Berlin, of course. So when, yeah, it just, go ahead. And when these, with some of these artists, uh, the black artists, were they, how did they feel about all of a sudden it's coming back to them, coming back to these kids who didn't know about Detroit, now loving the sound, but they know nothing about where it came from. Did they have any, were they upset? Did they like, oh, whatever? Were there's any, were Derek, Juan, all those guys, how did they feel to see Paul Oakenfold and all these guys making millions in America, selling out shows in Detroit and places like that? And they never got an opportunity to do stuff like that. Did that bother them at all? I would say that's why we kind of made this film because the recognition at stateside in America just isn't there. Like like Christian said before, they made, I mean, they did these guys, the Belleville Three, Juan, Kevin, and Derek did make a living, a good living, being world class DJs, um, selling their ex exports overseas. You know, so that's like he said, that became cool. But now, you know, if I may, I feel like they are, everyone's getting older and it's kind of hard to get on that plane every weekend um, to make that money. And now um, that's why this is a problem. We made the film so that we could increase awareness about, you know, these um, techno, these true techno pioneers right here in America. It's an original um, art form and um, they're not being celebrated like they deserve to be celebrated. And um, and that it's a problem when you see these lists that um, Forbes puts out, the cash kings of electronic dance music. Yes, I'm sure that really um, kind of weighs on them, you know, as they have to pack up and gear up for their next um, overseas, you know, event. So I think it's it's now it was cool, it was cute being underground and um, traveling the world like that. But now I feel like they would be able to, you know, kind of rest on some laurels and to be um, uplifted and um, kind of. Uh, appreciated here more for sure and to be able to participate in that um multi-billion dollar uh economy or industry that is now electronic dance music well let's stick on this topic but i want to i want to step into a, a controversy i guess we call it the bay hive for a minute you know beyonce released a, a kind of a dance record and people there were people who loved it and there was people in detroit and even chicago that kind of like hmm you know, she won an award, but then these icons, these legends, never got a nominee for Grammy, never got anything. And all of a sudden, Beyonce stepped into it. And, like, I hear both arguments, like, she's bringing attention to the music, but then, like, well, what about the people who never got the recognition? What is your take, or did you have any conversations, I mean, of course, this is after the film and all that, about that with any artists? Or what's your personal take on Beyonce, I don't want to, I'll hope not to be the Beehive not come after you or anything, but. <laughs> beehive, come get me. No, <laughs> no. Um, 
you know, because we were making the film like during prior to that record's release, we we just know that by the time it happened, it was interesting and that again they're talking about it, you know, through the lens of house music. And sometimes through the lens of house music, you know, um, you you don't even, you're not even thinking about techno, you know, and then it, we, we kind of have to be like, well, what about techno? And I, I like to just talk about black dance music, mm. you know, because if you talk about it from the context of black dance music, you have house music, you have techno music, you have uh, yeah. ghetto tech, you have, you, you know, you just have all these different parts, all these different musics within electronic music and uh within dance music and um when beyonce and the beehive kind of like i mean that record bro you you hear that record everywhere i was in london and that that was the record you know still i, I think i was i was there in november of last year and it was still uh the one of the records i think uh i heard julian I mean, uh, Jelly Bean Benitez play it. You know, I, I heard like all kind of like signature signature DJs play that record. And, uh, you know, we were hoping for some spillover, you know, that like, hey, now that they kids know about this record, maybe they want to know more about black dance music and, you know, they'll gravitate to this film. And we, we definitely had a little synergy between that we we definitely would have liked more you know but i think that just in the circles that i run in that people were happy that the, you know she did make the record but of course hoping that there would be like maybe like a flood of other records that could be made that uh would bring more attention to this music beyond what the queen queen b had done you know what i mean so jim yeah um i got a few couple more questions i'm gonna keep you but um staying on this kind of topic like i said before before interview like you know you know country has roots in black culture like all these genres that been lost to our own people in the mainstream media uh has been really upsetting to me like i the station i created hyphen is kind of trying to address that right to show that we're we have black people have created American music culture. You know, the banjo came from Africa and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we talked about how the you know African American Museum in, in DC had this Afrofuturism exhibit, and you mentioned only have one photo of techno. And you think I would think they would have a whole section dedicated to this this creation. Um, what do you think it would take to to change the mindset? of our culture, the mainstream culture of black culture and the media, the, the black enterprises, the, you know, BETs and of the world to really embrace this the way it should, like any other hip hop, R&B, and even jazz to some extent to change how we embrace our own creations. We need Beyonce. We need Jay-Z. <laughs> we need the, uh, the, the film, the, the guys, the, you know, the music needs the right champion. Um, and and um, that's what the film is facing too, you know, increasing awareness about this um, music that doesn't get the love on the radio. I think that's really where all of this comes from, not, <clears throat> not being supported in popular music. 
And I think that also stems from being connected to disco. Techno was connected to disco. So uh, disco was a genre that was killed and um, techno came right after disco. So I feel like it just kind of, it didn't, it didn't see the type of commercial and popular success in the U.S. that, um, that, you know, that hip hop did because hip hop just became, uh, that became the genre, the music that um, black uh, radio was supporting. And so it kind of just left the techno music and the techno pioneers having to fend for themselves individually. Um, not, and they didn't have a, there was no Motown music company infrastructure left in Detroit that could really support that and cement it as being a Detroit uh, or American art form. Sorry about that. And so um, that's why I feel like it's, is still struggling and and the guys are still struggling to hold on to their legacy here in America for sure. And I think we need to hold museum curators and people kind of we need to hold them hold them to the fire and be responsible for kind of preserving the history of this music. I mean Gogo is having the same Gogo has the same issue. Uh not only Gogo has a, has a similar issue, but as we mentioned, jazz has historically had this issue. Um, but it's it's almost like um, you know you have Adrian Loving, you have uh, uh, Lene Denise, you have King Brit, of course. You know you have people out there championing the music and championing black dance music. Uh, as Jen said, we just need more. And, you know, Dion Cole is a is somebody who's a DJ, somebody in that re regard. But we just need more people uh, to kind of be uh, conscious of this history and uh, willing to celebrate it in environments that people are kind of like always looking for stars mm -hmm. like oh we, we are we need we need a proven commodity to book or things of this nature well this is a proven commodity you just don't know until you you put your resources behind it i mean we get you know just sidetracking a bit we get calls from around the globe for about this film and about what we're doing and historically have gotten calls uh from the time we started, people have been calling us asking to exhibit this film. And how can we see this film? So, uh, you know, we just need uh, more people to uh, kind of champion what is now a film that's uh, been translated in the uh, five languages. This year mm -hmm. it'll be six and seven. Like, uh, not only has it been translated in different languages, uh, we we now have a version that we're uh, showing a sixty minute version that we're showing this for young people, for uh, student age, you know that that could kind of uh, elementary and middle schoolers. So we're we're doing what we can as as a film to take our 
our our belief and our argument to the audience and meet them where they're at so that they can understand that this history is uh, an important musical history, a part of not only the African-American legacy or the Detroit music legacy, but the overall African African American musical legacy. So um, yeah, we just need some more champions, you know, if that if that rings, if that answers your question. For those who listen to the interview, haven't seen the film or didn't even know that this is part of Black history, as you know, Black history must be around the corner. Give me either both together or individually, give me five songs that someone that has never heard this genre and knows the history that they should listen to first. You can combine them or you can give me individual five songs. How's that? I'll let you decide. Okay. Big Fun, Good Life, both by Inner City, one, two. Alleyways of Your Mind, Cybertron, Cosmic Cars, Cybertron, Strings of Life, Rhythm is Rhythm, Derek May. Uh, I would say... Uh... Eddie Folks, Goodbye Kiss, Derek, uh, Blake Baxter's When We Used to Play, uh, Risa Santonio, uh, You Don't Know how, uh, how to Play Our Music. Uh, I would also say uh, Robert Hood, Minimal Album. Uh, I would also say, uh, give, let me get another one, um, Jeff Mills, The Bells. I would say that. Oh, and there's also uh, "You Are" or "Los Harmonos" is one of the biggest uh, records. Jaguar? Uh, Jaguar. Thank you. Yeah, Jaguar. I would say listen to that. Well, thank you. Um, I know on your website you have a post about trying to get a Netflix, and I know a lot of people here in this video are like, man, I want to see this film. How do people can like help you get this film to a wider audience? What do you need? What kind of support you need? Well, we definitely, you know, anytime uh, we please follow us on Instagram, uh, Facebook, all the socials, YouTube. But we if people ask us all the time, when can we see this film streaming? When can we see this on Netflix? Um, there is a page on Netflix website is called Title Suggestion. And if you go, if you Google Netflix title suggestion, um, you can go and fill it out and say, you want to see God say, give them drum machines. Otherwise, um, there is another um, page on our site, DetroitTechnoMovie.com, uh, where um, if you would like to bring um, a screening to your city, all you have to do is fill out the form and then one of us will get back to you and we can uh, work something out for a screening in your city. Any last words? Again, your film is really amazing. And I've been trying to tell people a lot and still I, everybody, every time I tell somebody, they, they are shocked by the history. They always said, man, that's that's some white kids music from Europe. Well, we're oh, trying yeah. to change that. We're trying to change that. I mean, this Black History Month and every Black History Month, we I feel like we feel like we should be celebrating this music, um, these techno pioneers, Detroit and this film. And um, we're our hashtag that we're um, campaigning is um, techno is black history, hashtag techno is black history. And so um, there's other actually there's other ways to be able to support this movement, too. Um, we also have a book um, that's a companion to the film that's available for sale now 
on the website. And then we also um, are doing another season, a second season to our behind the scenes podcast that's going to be starting back in the spring. So where you can hear more about our journey and um, streaming uh, release plans as well. Yeah. And I, I, I'm sorry. I wanted to kind of like piggyback off of that because, um, because this film is also a film rooted in archival. You know, there's a lot of archival in this film. Uh, we're in the process of, you know, kind of getting the funds we need to kind of take care of that. So if there's anyone out there who's like interested in like producing or executive producing a film, give us a call because that'll make it faster for us to get this film to uh streaming to wider streaming platforms and you know because this music is kind of an independent uh music i mean we're definitely trying to stay independent and we've been trying to stay independent and in where our film doesn't just you know uh show up on uh, a cable network and next thing you know the cable network is um, folded into another network and then your the rights of your film are kind of lost for years so by not getting on a streamer coming right out of Tribeca or when this film was released has really allowed us to do a lot of this outreach and impact work that wouldn't have happened had the music had the movie just come and gone so again, if there's somebody out there that wants to learn more about documentary filmmaking and they can, and there's a grant available or they have some funds available and they want to see this film go for it, reach out to us as well. Is there any soundtracks in the making for the film? Actually working on that right now. Uh, <laughs> bro, we made over 109 music cues. Mm. Uh, in addition to licensing music from the likes of Delano Smith, uh, uh, Delano Smith with uh, Kai Alsay. Uh, we had a young kid named Butterbands who is uh, a young up and coming artist. Like, so we did license some films, but through working with Reggie Dokes, he, he created over a hundred and some music tracks based on kind of moods and feelings that we needed to uh, express in the movie. And we've now kind of cut those 109 tracks down to like 40 something and then, you know we're gonna scale it down to something a little more manageable like the 22 and you know like under 25 something that we could put out as a digital release and some of the more uh dancier songs we hope to release those on on a vinyl so yeah we're we're basically using that we're hoping to use the soundtrack again as something that we can bundle with the film and the book to create something really unique for collectors.